Welcome to Quarantine Spook Show. I'm Kyle Carezzi. This is a series of improvised horror stories. I'll be pulling titles at random, and then those titles will govern what the story is about. The first card I draw will be the arc of the story for tonight's episode, and then the second card I draw will be the name of the first story. <clears throat> Alright, this first story is called, We're Gonna Have a Good Day. <laughs> uh... Uh, the uplifting stories always have a bitter turn. <laughs> and the first story is called... Gimme the B-14. seems like every day since March of 2020. It's been tremendously difficult to have a good day. But Billy always made the effort anyway. He'd wake up in the morning and think, you know what? This time, today is going to be the day that I have a good day. But somehow, by the day ended, Billy always felt that it wasn't a good day. So on this particular morning when he woke up, he really meant it this time. He was just like, you know what? Today's gonna be fantastic. It's gonna be the best day ever. I don't care if I'm setting my expectations high. It's gonna happen because I will will it to be. But the day already took a downward turn when Billy went to work. Now, since the pandemic, he sought a job to keep him safe from the virus. So he worked at a, as a barista in a drive through coffee shop. So he was just like, okay, the company requires masks. We always clean up. No one comes in, they just drive through. It's a simple way to stay germ-free to stay safe from all the bullshit. So Billy was doing his morning and afternoon shift. Getting randos coming in to get coffee or lattes or whatever. And he'd always have the similar, same conversations come over and over. They're just, he was just like, hey, how are you? the customer would always say, oh, hanging in there, or, ah, keep my head above water. And Billy thought, yeah, yeah, me too. He, don't, he doesn't know why he puts so much pressure on himself to have a good day. Because the standard for a good day seemed to plummet during those months. If you were feeling okay, if you were hanging in there, 
That was the new standard of a great day. But Billy thought no. He didn't accept that. He still wanted the best day ever. Despite the pandemic. So he tried to find ways throughout the day to have a good day. He had his favorite latte, listened to his favorite podcast, WTF with Mark Marin. There was a really good interview with Jerry Seinfeld that he was into. Because Mark Marin and Jerry Seinfeld are such a dichotomy of comedians, and it was really enthralling to see their ideals clash in the context of comedy. But even still, it wasn't quite the same. He enjoyed himself, but it didn't quite bring him to the high standard of a good day that he sought and he craved. So he was doing a shift with shift with uh, Frederick, and they were just like shooting the shit, and it's just like, oh, things are really fucked up, right? And Billy was just like, yeah, I guess so. Even when customers asked him, like, oh, how are you today? And Billy said, go, good. And then the customer would be like, shit, really? But Billy wanted things to be good. Truly, he did. But he strived to do that just by, you know, BSing himself to a degree. But if he could have one good day, then by golly. So him and Frederick are talking, shooting the shit, shooting the breeze. And Billy was never really a good cook. He lived alone in a studio apartment. He ate a lot of beans and noodles. Not a lot of spices. A lot of PB&Js. But four months of PB&Js really hits you hard. So Billy ended up talking about, like, oh, I haven't had a good hot meal in a really long time. And then Frederick said, oh, why don't you learn how to cook? And Billy was just like, meh, meh, you know. See, Billy's problem was, as much as he wanted a good day, he didn't quite want to make the effort to be it so. He always tried to take a shortcut, even when there wasn't one. So when they were talking about meals and food, uh, Billy was saying, yeah, I haven't had a hot meal, a good one in a while. And then Frederick said, oh, there's a, a Thai restaurant I'm really into, you know. They have some great food there. And then Billy said, oh yeah, that sounds really good. Maybe I'll stop by or something. They do takeout and delivery and stuff. And Fred Frederick said, yeah, yeah, you can just pick it up and it'll be fine, you know. And then Billy said, oh, what do you recommend there? And Frederick said, oh, well, their pad thai's good, you know, all their stuff is really great. But they kept talking about a new dish called just a B-14. Usually have, they have letters and numbers to identify their meals. But this one was just called the B-14. No description or anything like that. I guess they consider it as a mystery dish. And Billy thought, ah, oh, maybe that'll do it. Spontaneity, you know, taking risks. Maybe that'll bring the good days that I solely crave. <laughs> so when he got off his shift, you know, he stayed for extra hours because uh, his co-worker Quint quit spontaneously, so we had to work a couple extra hours, and Billy thought, oh, I guess that's their version of a good day, I guess, you know. So needless to say, at the end of the day, Billy was exhausted. 
serving coffee to a bunch of random people. But he looked up this Thai restaurant, and he thought, yeah, I'm going to get something there. I'll even get the B14. So he uh, got on his cell phone, smartphone, and they made a call to the Thai restaurant, and they're just like, hey, what do you want? And Billy was just like, oh, yeah, I want to get the B14. And then there was a long silence on the other end of the phone. And the person that answered said, are you sure you want the B14? And Billy thought about this. And he said, yeah, but, uh, you know, what is it? Another long pause. And the person on the other end said, I don't think you want to get the B-14. And Billy was like, oh, why not? And the person was like, well, you know, it's just, um... I don't know how to describe it, really, you know. The chefs won't tell me what it's made with. I always just serve it in a box and serve it. But whenever I do serve it, I never see those customers again. And then Billy thought about it. It was like, well, presumably, if that happens, then maybe it's not a great meal, you know. But even still, Billy wanted to take that risk, you know. Seek seeking new horizons. That's what enthralled him. So he was just like, alright, I'll take the B-14 then. And the person on the other line was just like, okay, if you say so. So Billy went to the Thai restaurant. And then the cashier cashier there, she was just like, alright, here you go. And she handed him, the, handed him the box. It was very warm, like some hot meal was in there. And Billy was like, so you have no idea what's in here? And she was like, no, I have no idea. So he went to open it, and then she said, no, no, not here. And then Billy said, well, why not? And she says, just, just, just don't do it. It's takeout. Um, germs and stuff, you know? Just take it outside, you know, take it wherever you're going to eat it. But uh, don't eat it here. And Billy said, well, okay. So he paid and then just took the box with him. He brought it home in his lonely studio apartment. His fridge was empty, just a uh, half a block of cheese and some old milk. And he saw the milk and he was just like, oh, I should really throw that out at some point. But then he ended up not doing it. Kind of reveals how Billy's state of mind was. So he sat at his... Uh, his dining table and as he sat there he kind of wondered why he had a dining table he never had people over ever since the pandemic but he liked to feel like he was having a group meal despite being alone so he opened the box and it was just pad thai just something very simple and he was just like oh okay he has a bite and he was just like oh it's actually pretty good. And he starts, has another bite. He's like, yeah, this is amazing. He eats more and more, and he's just like, oh my god, this is like the best meal that I've ever had. And he gobbles it up. The meal was so delicious that he ate it quickly, just 
He actually choked a couple times because he had trouble breathing as he was eating it. That's how delicious it was. It was like he blinked and his meal was gone. Just an empty box with just some random saw spits in there. And he was like, God damn, that was amazing. I feel great. My, the flavors on my tongue, they're, my tongue feels so evocative right now. This is the new horizon that I've been seeking this whole time. This is great. So he took his takeout box and chucked it in the corner of his room with all his other takeout boxes. Because he didn't clean. It's just a month of takeout. Just empty takeout receptacles in the corner of the room. Sometimes he would toss a sheet over it so he didn't have to think about it. And he was just like, yeah, that was fucking great. And then he heard a voice that said, yeah, wasn't it? And he turns and tries to see where the voice is. But he doesn't see anyone. He's just like, yeah, yeah, it was. So he sits quietly at his table, and it's just like, okay. So I'm feeling pretty great now. I feel like it's that scene in uh, Waiting for Godot, when the two characters declare that they're happy. It's just like, they say, I'm happy. And they wait for a beat, and they're just like, so what do we do now? And then Billy was in that same predicament. She's like, ah, oh, I feel great, but I have to do something else that feels great, you know? Fuck. So he tried to, he didn't know what to do. He didn't have any evocative hobbies or any networking contacts or anything like that. He didn't want to go on like Netflix or Hulu or something because he didn't want to, he didn't want to tap out. He wanted to, he felt enthralled by his renewed good mood and disposition. So he was just like, I know, I'll play Solitaire. It's been ages since he played Solitaire. He had a couple decks set up. It was one of his favorite games. His whole grievance with the internet age is that board games and card games were less in favor because people always just went to digital content for entertainment. As much as he enjoyed his video games and his Netflixes and all that, he did love old-fashioned card games. So he got his deck set up and he started playing Spider Solitaire. And he was just like, oh yeah, this is great. And he was sitting alone. He didn't even play music or anything. Just sitting in the silence with, with his thoughts. Very meditative. And he was just like, yeah, fucking solitaire. I love it. And he was trying to orchestrate the suits and the numbers together and all that. However you play Spider Solitaire. The storyteller has spent such a long time not playing it that he, he kind of forgets. But that's besides the point. But Billy's playing it. He's into it. And then he hears a voice that says, no, don't do that, go there. And Billy's just like, what? What? But again, he sees nothing. So again, he keeps playing some more. And then he hits a point where he has like another trouble of putting a card somewhere. And then he hears a voice that says, no, 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 not that, just put it over there. And then Billy's just like, what the fuck? He didn't know what's going on. They were all different voices that spoke to him. So he looked around his table with his empty chairs and he was just like, uh, who's around me right now? Is anyone here? But he just hears silence and he's just like, all right, I'm gonna not play solitaire right now.
was just like, alright, well, I'm still feeling good from the meal, it was amazing. But I still want to do something that feels good, that also keeps me in tune with myself. So he's just like, oh, I know, I'll meditate. I haven't done that in years, you know. I'm not a Buddhist or anything, but I like sitting quietly. So he goes and sits at the center of his empty, empty, sad studio apartment. He sits and he sits cross-legged and he just sits and meditate. He meditates, thinks about thoughts. The waves of random thoughts and anxieties just pass him by. And he's just like, yeah, this is good. But then he hears a voice that says, you're doing it wrong. And Billy's just like, what the fuck? So he looks around, but he doesn't see anyone. So Billy just sits quietly some more. And he hears a voice that says, no, no, that's not it either. And it's, whoa, 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 whoa. Billy's just like, he's confused. He, He's trying to be alone, trying to be at peace. But he hears all these voices, and he doesn't know where they're coming from. So Billy's just like, alright, I'm just gonna, you know what, I'm just gonna look out my window, look at some trees, look at the moon, I'll open my window and listen to the crickets, yeah, just being at peace with myself, just some simple contemplation, it doesn't matter if it's a pandemic as long as I'm just me and in tune with myself, so he's just looking out the window, and then he hears a voice that says, you should really clean your apartment. And Billy's just like, alright, what's happening? What's happening here? Then he turns around. And at his table, he sees a whole batch of strangers. Even some new chairs that he didn't have previously. Some fold-out chairs. And they're all just sitting at the table watching at him, staring. And Billy looks back at them and he's just like, what's going on? And then one of the people say, Oh, we're the, we're the committee. And then Billy's just like, committee? What? And then another one says, yeah, we're the committee. You got the, uh, you got the Thai dish, and now you just, yeah. When you eat the Thai dish, it summons ghosts, and they, uh, you know. So now we're here to help you out with stuff. And Billy's just like, help me out with what? And then one of them says, well, you know, you should clean your apartment seriously. And Billy's just like, no, I don't gotta listen to this. One of them says it doesn't matter. This is where the committee, we're, we put our heads together. We want you to have a good day. You know, we think, you know, cleaning your apartment, you know, filling your fridge, learning how to cook. These are all things that'll help you have consistently good days despite a crisis, you know, around the world. And Billy's just like, no, no, I'm, I'm going to go for a walk. So he rushes out of his apartment. And he tries to walk just around his neighborhood, you know, just in circles around the block. He tries to think, alright, there's a committee here. Shit, I don't know what to do about it. So he just keeps walking. And then he gets back to his apartment. And it's empty once again. And he doesn't see the committee. And he's just like, alright, I think I'm gonna try calling this Thai place. So he tries calling the Thai place, and they're still open, and the person on the other end is just like, yeah, hello. And then Billy says, yeah, hi, um, I ordered the B-14, and uh, I guess these like ghosts or whatever, or like a committee or something. And then the person on the other line just hangs up. And 
Billy's just like, huh, that's, that's weird. So, eventually Billy goes to sleep. And then he gets to work the next morning. And a co-worker, he just asked him, Hey, Billy, did you have a good day yesterday? And he was just like, no, really, really sucks, you know? And his co-worker Natasha just said, oh, well, what happened? And Billy said, uh, it's too complicated to explain. So eventually the first customer of the day arrives. They make their order for a caramel mocha. And then Billy starts to froth the milk. And then, they, and then he hears a voice that says, oh, no, no, don't do it like that. And then Billy just freaks out and then spills the whole drink. And another voice just says, oh, see, you ruined it. And Billy's just like, all right, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. So he leaves the coffee shop. Eventually, Billy is just sitting outside his work, saying he's just taking a long lunch or whatever, just trying to think about this committee, you know. And he hears a voice that says, you know, maybe you'll have a better time if you actually listen to us about things. And then Billy's like, alright, I'll bite. Just, if he'll make it go away, just tell me what to do and I can do that. So, uh, Billy goes through his day and he takes instructions by the committee. And he's making the lattes and stuff. And he's doing everything the committee says. Eventually, he gives a latte to a customer, and they have a sip in the car, and then they spit it out, and it's just like, oh, this latte tastes like shit. And Billy's just like, oh no, it's a damn committee, you know? So eventually, he still tries to listen to the committee, and when he gets to his apartment later that night, he uh, does what they say, he uh, cleans his apartment, he cooks for himself. tries to cook some chicken, you know. And he does everything that they said about cooking the chicken, you know. The seasonings and the putting in the pan and stuff. So eventually, Billy presents himself with just like a chicken dish. He doesn't know quite what it is. It doesn't really good to eat. It doesn't really look good to eat. So he's just like, alright, I'm gonna eat this. And then the ghost says, yeah, go for it. We put our heads together and it's, we think it's a great dish and Billy's like okay so Billy just eats it one by one one piece by one piece at a time and he's just like all right this is okay it's not as good as the B14 but he's just like you know what it's, I'm just gonna I'll eat this chicken I made it it feels good that I cooked it myself so so we ate it slowly because it didn't taste very good Eventually, he finished the chicken dish. And he feels like he has an upset stomach later in the evening. And he says out loud, oh, what's happening? And then he hears one of the ghost voices say, oh, well, you undercooked it. And then Billy's just like, what do you mean I undercooked it? I did everything you said. And then another voice said, well, you didn't, like, cook it long enough, or, like, the way you put it in the pan, it was, like, askew, and... Billy was just like, I did everything you said, though. And then one of the ghost voices says, well, you fucked it up anyway, you know? 
maybe you just suck, Billy. And Billy's just like, I'm just trying to have a good day. So his stomach pains are killing him. It keeps him awake. The hours tick by. Midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m. Eventually, Billy stops moving altogether. And then his last breath leaves his body. And he dies on his bed with a tummy ache from undercooked chicken. But then sporadically he wakes up and then he looks around his room and he sees all the ghosts on the committee staring at him. They're all more fleshed out than when he saw them in, his, in their ghost forms. They could see their different outfits from which time periods and cultures they came from. And then one of them smiles at Billy and he says, Welcome to the committee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's... Yeah. <laughs> I you know what? I try to I try to deliver. I, I aim to please. <laughs> Well, the beauty of it was, at the time, I had no idea. Oh my god, is that for real? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've never seen these titles before. <laughs> Bravo, that was fantastic. Mm -hmm. I'm actually really freaked out by that thing. Yeah, I, mean, I am too. Mm -hmm. I am too. I don't want my ancestors to call me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, welcome to Quarantine Spook Show. <laughs> I, well, let's, yeah, I don't know how many you put in. I'm just pulling them. Okay, I'm pulling them at random. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's... I mean, what's spook? What's? I mean, what's spookier than micromanagement? <laughs> yeah. This next story is called The Experience of Nothingness.
Sandra tried really hard as anyone else to have a good day during the pandemic. And just like anyone else, it took great difficulty. And she didn't try to force it. She didn't try to bullshit herself because she knew exactly how much bullshit was in the world and she was having none of it. But she tried to make her own fun. So that's why she was really excited to tune into a Zoom virtual book tour for the book called The Experience of Nothingness. One grievance she had about the pandemic, one of many grievances. She couldn't meet with, meet with her intellectual peers about how much bullshit was around the world. Sometimes she'd post things on social media, but none of her posts really encapsulated how much she thinks everything is bullshit. But she was really excited for the uh, book tour, you know. It was hosted by several uh, bookshops around the country, you know. So she tuned in uh, at 2 p.m. on a Saturday. She saw the audience, and then there was the author himself, Dimitri Claus. So Dimitri was like, ah, oh, hello, everyone. And then the interview was just like, oh, Dimitri, welcome to uh, our little shop. And Dimitri was just like, well, it's not really a shop. It's kind of bullshit. And then Sandra's just like, oh, I fucking love this guy. So she watched the interview, you know. And Dimitri, you know, he was uh, not hesitant about saying why everything was bullshit. He was just like, yeah, we're just experiencing, you know, a lot of nothingness, you know. Everyone thinks they're experiencing something. But really, it's just a grand nothing. And Sandra was just like, oh shit, so awesome. Fucking nihilism all the way. <laughs> <laughs> so then I got to the Q&A portion of the virtual book tour. And a bunch of randos on Zoom asked their questions. There was one portion when, uh, an audience member was about to ask their question, then their Zoom feed cut off. And Sandra just thought, ah, oh, that was bullshit. And then Dimitri said out loud, ah, oh, that was really bullshit. And then Sandra's like, fuck yeah, you know. She really just... So more Q&A portion went on. But then Sandra got a shot at asking a question. Sandra was so excited to ask Dimitri a provocative question. She thought for a long time about it. And she said, hey, Dimitri. And Dimitri's like, yeah? And then Dimitri say, said, yeah, you're gonna got, got a question? And Sandra said, yeah, well, first off, I just want to say I love the book. And Dimitri was like, okay. And then Sandra thought, shit, maybe he thinks I'm bullshitting him or something. And then Sandra said, no, I really do like the book. And Demetrius is like, yeah, okay. So then Sandra said, all right, I'll just get to the question. So your book is about the experience of nothingness, which is therefore all experiences, 
but have you ever mistaken an experience for something? Dimitri thought about it. And he thought, ah, well, there's a lot of mediations between somethingness and nothingness. Many philosophers have, have, have covered it, but probably not as much as myself. But as I, I reflect on all my experiences about nothingness, I feel like there is one experience in my life ever when I've experienced something. And this got a gasp from the interviewer. And she was just like, you experienced something? And Demetrius said, yes. I've experienced something only once. But the thing is, I, I don't... The thing is, I don't remember it. You see, when I was a child, I woke up and hung out with my friend Pen. Pen. And me and Pen were childhood friends during the 70s, where we can kind of just like walk around and stuff, the neighborhood, the woods, by our cul-de-sac, and just did random shit, blew some stuff up. It was really badass and cool to be a kid in the 70s. However, as the day went on, as I reflect upon it, I just simply cannot remember it. I just kind of got back to the house, and then my parents asked, oh, where were you? And then I could on honestly say, I, I didn't know. But the peculiar thing is, I never saw a pen again. So as I categorize all experiences as nothingness, the one time I've forgotten, the one time where an afternoon has been wiped away from me, it had to have been something. And then Sandra asked a follow-up question and asked, well, what do you think that something was? And then Demetri said, I, I can't tell you. I've gone through my entire life philosophizing, being bitter about everything being bullshit. But the one day in my life I felt something. It's just, it was wiped away from me. So then the Q&A went on. And Sandra thought about this. And she thought, well, everything's pretty much bullshit, but it'd be nice to feel something. Maybe that'll help me have a good day. So, a week after the virtual book uh, conference, interview, Q&A thing, I don't know if those things have a name yet, because we were just, we're all just adapting, you know? <laughs> Sandra sent an email to Dimitri, and she said, Dimitri, I was the person to ask if you ever felt something in your life, and you gave a very provocative answer. I'm wondering if I can call you and ask more about what that something could have been. The next day, she got an email from Dimitri. Says, "Yeah, I can, I can call. You can call me sometime this afternoon. We can talk about it." So she called him up on the phone, and she felt it was such an honor to talk about someone so legendary, someone so nihilistic and brilliant. And then Sandra said, "Well." So, Dimitri, you said you felt something, but you don't remember it. Do you remember where you were? Dimitri laughed, and he said, What do you think? 
Xandros is like, okay, okay, but like, where could you have been? I mean, have you ever tried to look after this at all? Try to investigate it a little bit more? And Dimitri says, no. Everything's bullshit, so I can't say that I have. So Sandra said, well, I mean, you know, I guess this happened in your hometown, so can you tell me where where it was? Because I, I want to look into it. If you felt something, I want to feel something too. I'm really nihilistic and hardcore like that. And Demetrius was like, yes, I can tell. Sandra said, so, you know, can you help me out on this? And Demetrius said, all right. Well, I grew up, you know, I grew up in New Hampshire in this little town called Bumblefoot. So I can, you know, I, you know, whatever happened, happened probably in like the outskirts of the woods. Because I only remember entering the woods and then exiting them. And Sandra said, okay, well, thanks, Dimitri. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to look into, into this and get back to you. Maybe we can feel something together. And then Dimitri said, yes, I hope. So, Sandra, you know, living in South Carolina, she had to drive all the way to New Hampshire. She didn't take a train or an airplane because it was too early in the pandemic to trust any of that shit. That was bullshit, you know, and she didn't like bullshit. She did things on her own, you know. So she drove to New Hampshire to the little town of Bumblefoot that Dimitri Claus was from. And she was like, okay, this is the place. And eventually she arrives at the cul-de-sac where he grew up. So she parked and she was like, all right, so this is the cul-de-sac. I guess whatever happened, the something he felt among the nothingness is probably in those woods. So she went into the woods, walked for a bit, you know, thought it was very pretty. She heard a lot of criticisms about the uh, New England woods in Vermont and New Hampshire just being really decrepit and sad. But she thought it was really cool because that was her aesthetic. So she wandered. She brought a compass with her to feel really old school and all that. But then she gets to a certain point where the compass is spinning around. It's not pointing north anymore. <clears throat> so she's she said she thought, oh, this must be this mu must be something real here, something real hardcore. Maybe something is here. She trained her mind to only think of things in terms of nothingness. But she was so excited that she earnestly thought something is here. She, so she was just like, perhaps this is the thing to break my nihilism once and for all. So as her compass is spinning around, she tries to find the point where it's getting the most hectic. Wherever it rotated the most, the fastest, that's where she started to walk. Eventually she gets to a point where the compass is spinning so fast that the glass breaks. And she cuts herself on her thumb. And she says, well, that's almost something. 
but not quite what I'm looking for. So she's walking through the forest, going through the shrubbery, and then she hears a flowing creek. It's very soothing, very soft. It reminds her of the literature of fairies and the other world. And she's just like, all right, this might be something. So she follows the sounds of the creek. It's very serene. All the grass and the trees are very lush. There is a rain, rainstorm that came two days before. And she feels very inspired in the way of like the Emerson types of just walking through nature and thinking like, yeah, this is cool. And she says, oh, this is almost something, but it's not quite. Like a Wyeth sense of in being in tune with nature. So she goes through the bush. And then she sees a clearing where the creek is. And before her, she sees a gnome. It's just like a little stout garden gnome. In the stereotypical way you would see, like the red hat and beard and everything. And then she watches the gnome, and the gnome's just washing his feet in the creek. He has like a loofah, and he's just like scrubbing it really hardcore. It's kind of like moldy and mildewy. And it smells really bad, even from a distance. just you would think that uh fairy type creatures would be really at peace really serene but this gnome was really crusty and smelly and was just like really grumpy and really not thrilled about washing his foot and then suddenly he looks up at sandra and then he says yeah can i help you and sandra's just like oh um sorry i was just and the gnome was just like what i'm bathing here what do you need and the Sandra was just like, oh, I was just, I was looking for something. And the gnome said, well, you found it. Now leave me alone. And Sandra's like, okay, shit, shit. So she just wanders off, feeling delirious about what she's seen. About some random gross gnome bathing, probably doing a shitty job. And she feels like she's just like walking in circles for a bit in the woods, just being like, what the fuck was that? And then eventually she exits the woods, back into the cul-de-sac where she parked. And as she gets into her car, she, you know, she gets in the driver's seat, closes the door, and just sits there, gripping the steering wheel. And then just thinks, what the hell happened? Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> no, they don't. They don't. Do you know what a gnome does in the like classic folklore? I'm, I'm listening. Mm-hmm. Right, they soak them in the blood. Next time I'm writing that on a speaking note. I don't think Davis do that. I don't talk about 
about which floor break, but... No idea, but that's hardcore. It's yeah. so hardcore. That's why also, the experience of nothingness is a book. I'm, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> I, but in this case, it was fictional, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, when you went with Dimitri, I knew it was like, alright. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty convinced Carl is Also, I've been in, a, in an arm wrestling match with this person named Sandra. <laughs> <laughs> But it's just like you, you, when you encounter something that disrupts, disrupts denialism, it's just so hardcore that you don't even, it's just, exactly. you're, well, you have to repress it, you know, yeah. I was like, I don't want, why would you want to get rid of denialism? That's your best friend. That's your best Sandra, friend of survival. Sandra wasn't worried. Um, Sandra is not worried. Not Sandra's not here right now, mm. so that's obvious. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, how Like, you know, so Sandra and Billy were just looking to have a good day. Right Didn't really. <laughs> that's, a, that's all you need. One person just wants a good meal. Another person just wants to feel something, you know. Not too much to ask, but apparently it is. I... I... I really want to like make this porch like a venue space. Yes. Like it's, yeah, yes. yeah it's it's awesome. very ideal for that. Yeah. Yes. My meetings today, they kept people keep asking, and I said I will put it to my partners. We keep talking about it, but like people need in on this. I mean, it wouldn't take much, obviously. No, you know. No. I mean, it really is. It feels like Luna <laughs> Pro personal business. Yeah. Like it is. It it's. Personal. Yeah. Like it's a it's a it's a it's a show. You know. Have the next story pulled. Okay. <laughs> Have the next story pulled. Okay. All right, this one is called "And Through Decay, We Find the Void." nothing more than dead things. 
whenever he passed by roadkill, he was just like, oh, I'm so on it. And then he just would take pictures of it. He would try to collect bones. He would collect, you know, he had a collection of bones in his room. All from different animals and different species, different body parts. He used to keep rotting flesh in his house, but the smell was too dank and it was he didn't he didn't have an adequate adequate freezer. <laughs> yes, Ronald was fond of dead things. He'd always just take pictures of corpses and whatnot. The thing he was fascinated about was how bodies decayed from the stiffening to the flesh of it. He even worked at a morgue at some point and would help the mortician uh, analyze the bodies and whatnot. It was a very pure fascination. He just, he was someone who loved life and therefore loved death. But ever since the pandemic, it's been harder to go out and to find dead things and whatnot. And it was very difficult to have a good day in pandemic cir circumstances. But nothing helped him have a better day than being exposed to dead things. He would always read articles about how things decay, how bodies are treated after death for funeral services and whatnot. And since he was someone who loved life and therefore death, he saw a lot of meaning to death. He truly felt that analyzing death in the purest pragmatic form would really pro provide the true meaning of what all this is about. And knowing that truth is as good as day as and knowing that truth is as good a day as any. So eventually as a during the pandemic, he uh, worked as medical help for COVID patients and whatnot. Not as for a fascination for the dead, but just as a way to help in some ways. And if he was exposed to dead bodies, that was just, you know, his own personal fancy. But that wasn't his incentive. He had a very healthy relationship with death and decay. He didn't take it to a creepy place, you know. He truly honored the dead in all the ways you would want him to. So he's working at a Vermont State Hospital, treating patients and whatnot for COVID or otherwise. Not all of them make it. Some of them do, and he's thrilled about that. 
It's a lot of hard work that a lot of people don't understand. But he tries to do his best anyway. If he can help other people have a good day, then to him that was a good day's work. So he gets to know one patient at a Vermont State Hospital. And she's someone with leukemia. And she feels like, you know, death can take her at any minute. But she'd always strike up a conversation with Ronald about death and decay. She was almost as fascinated, fascinated to it as he was. They would just shoot a shit the shit about it. She used to be a mortician herself and would dissect bodies and give autopsies and stuff. Really loving the medical research aspect of it. As did he. So she asked Ronald kindly, yeah, I mean, you've gotten up close and personal about death and eroding flesh and whatnot. And Ronald said, yes. Yes, I have. And then she said, uh, well, have you ever seen the void? And then Ronald said, Would the void? What do you mean? And the patient went on to say, well, what I've found as a mortician, I've only seen this three times. Now, since both you and I are fascinated with death in a medical sense, We've both extracted a lot of meaning from analyzing dead things, dead bodies, bones, decaying flesh, and all of that. And Ronald said, yes, of course. And the patient said, but if you look close enough, you can see the void. And Ronald says, well, I don't... What do you mean by the void? Do you mean like a... You mean like the sense of meaning where we're all connected and all that? And then she said, no, not quite. I mean the void in a literal sense. See, I've only seen it three times, and very briefly. But what I think it is, is the actual passage of a spirit as they pass on. The void opens in an infinite blackness. They dive in, then it closes up. And again, I've only seen it three times. But maybe I'll see it for a fourth if I don't make it through this. And then Ronald says, well, you know, you could always, maybe you can make it for a little bit longer. And the patient says, uh, I, have a, I have an incurable disease. My days are numbered. I'm ready for death whenever it comes. And Ronald admired that about the patient. Because he wasn't sure if he felt the same way. As much as he loved death and learning about it so he can learn more about life. He wasn't sure if he was ready for it himself, but at the same time, he was as ready for it as anyone, really. So as the days go on in Vermont State Hospital, it happens. The patient that he has such a rapport with eventually passes on. He misses the time of death.
But she does know, he does know which morgue she's gonna go to. So eventually he visits, visits, visits that morgue, says he's a medical, medical person. He's have, he's had mortuary experience and they let him right through. And they seized the patient's body, who we later learned was named Denise. And she's look, he's looking at Denise's body, analyzing it, seeing the lack of, seeing the expression she made when she passed on. And then the mortician comes in and he says, oh, can I help you? And the Ronald said, oh, no, sorry, um, I'm a medical person, I've done mortuary stuff. Uh, so when I worked at Vermont State Hospital, I've known this patient. And we had a lot of provocative conversations about death. So I was wondering if I can, uh, you know, assist in the autopsy in some way. And the mortician says, all right, well, I'm going to do a proper autopsy in about a week. So if you want to schedule, we can work something out. You can come in and oversee it. I can't let you handle any of the uh, tools or anything, maybe, but, like, you can certainly sit in on it. And the Ronald said, great, great, thank you. So a week goes by, and... He arrives again back at the morgue in Vermont. He meets with the mortician and he sees Denise's body. And he oversees the autopsy, you know, going through it, seeing what she died of. And then Ronald said, oh, it seemed, uh, she had leukemia. And then uh, the mortician said, yeah, yeah, it really seemed like it. So they're going through the process of the autopsy. And then they wrap it up, and then the mortician says, well, I hope you, yeah. So the, the procedure's pretty much over, but I hope you, you know, got something from the experience. And Ronald said, oh, well, I was hoping to see the void, you know. And the mortician said, the void? And, uh... Ronald said, oh, this uh, is something me and the me and Denise talked about, you know. If you analyze uh, decaying flesh long enough, then you can see the void, you know. And the mortician thought about it, and he's just like, well, you know, I've heard people seeing that. I've never seen it myself. But certainly if it was something that I could see on purpose, I certainly would. But I don't know what I can do to help you see that, but I just, you know, hope that you got something from the autopsy. And then Ronald said, yeah, yeah, I did. It was nice to get some closure about it. So eventually they put Denise's body away. And then Ronald leaves the morgue, thinking about life, thinking about death. Wondering if he'll ever see the void. But as he walks and ponders, thinking that he's had a good day, he just thinks to himself, well, I'm sure I'll see the void at least once. <laughs> there, there's, there's, 
There's beauty in anticlimaxes, you know. Except it would be death or something. Well, but death has already the last story here okay. <laughs> <laughs> this one's called pear frenzy pear frenzy pear frenzy Yeah, just grab as many as you can, Robert said to Angela, as she picked pears off the tree. All the pears were ripe, and they seemed to ripen all at once. And then Robert said, yeah, it just kind of, you know, the harvest is always pretty uh, hectic, especially during this month, you know, but just, just grab as many pears as you can. If they look red, pick it. Uh, if, they, if they're, like, damaged too much, we can't sell it, but, like, put it in a different basket. We can make it can make it into booze or something. And Angela was new to harvesting fruit and picking pears and picking fruit, but she was really excited about it. She would just grab a pear one by one. It was actually very exciting about it, because almost all the pears on the tree were ripe, and all she had to do was tilt the pear at a 90 degree angle and it would just pop right off. And then Robert said, ah, that means they're ready to come off. And Angela said, hells yeah. So they go through the whole day picking pears. Angela's, Angela was really excite, excited volunteering at a communal farm. They had a lot of fruit trees at this farm. A lot of squashes and all that. So as the day goes on, they finish harvesting the pears from the tree. And then Angela, feeling exhausted from a long harvest day, 
She said to Robert, oh, that was really intense. That was a lot. And then Robert said, yeah, yeah, you know, that's just the thing about harvest and farming, you know. And Angela was like, yeah, I'm really into it. And then Robert said, yeah, right? And then Angela said, so what are you going to do with all these pears? And then Robert said, well, we're going to sell some of them on the market. Uh, some of them we're going to give away and donate to families in need and stuff. But we have so many that we just kind of have some extra, so we try to make them into alcohol and all that, or just give them away to friends and stuff. And then Angela said, oh, can I take some back? And then Robert said, yeah, yeah, go for it. All right, cool, cool. So Angela's just like picking up some pears. Putting them in her own little basket that she brought. Thinking how good of a day she had harvesting fruit off of a pear tree. And as she's pulling the pears, pulling the fruit, putting them in the basket, she looks, takes a close, close look at them. She looks at one specifically, and she says, hey, Robert, this one uh, has like a little hole in it. And then Robert said, oh, that's fine. It just means that like a bird got into it or something, but it's still good. It's still edible and stuff. And then Angel Angela said, yeah, but it kind of looks like a mouth, though. And Robert was just like, oh, what do you mean? And Angela said, well, look, it's it looks like a mouth, and it has like little tiny teeth around it. Do you see it? And then Robert said, oh, that's just the inside of the pear, you know, not a, not a big deal. Still just as edible. And then Angela said, all right, yeah, well, yeah, maybe I'll make a pie or something. So Angela brings a basket of pears to her house. She has her little dog, uh, Spot, you know, greeting her licking her, you know, loving her. And Angela's just like, oh, hey, Spot, how's it going? I was, look at all these pears I got. And Spot was like, whoa, pears. But Spot was just, like, excited about anything, really. But pears are certainly worth being excited about. So Angela, you know, she just puts the pears on the on her kitchen counter, and she's like, oh, I'll deal with them in the tomorrow. Maybe I'll bake a pie or something like I said I would. So she goes to sleep that night. And then hears a lot of sounds in the night. It's almost like little tiny basketballs bouncing on the floor. And she's just like, what the, what the hell is that? And then she goes in her kitchen and then sees a couple of pears on the floor. And she's just like, oh, how did that happen? Spot's not big enough to knock it over, so I don't understand what happened. But as she picks up the pears, she noticed that the little holes in the pears that she mistook as mouths were a little bit bigger. And what she mistook for teeth was a little bit sharper. She says, she says huh, it's really weird. I guess I knew a lot less about pears than I thought I did. You know. So she puts the pears in the basket, not really thinking much of it. She's half asleep anyway. 
So then she goes back to bed and just sleeps, dreams about badass farming stuff. Because she's just like, yeah, I'm really fucking into farming. And that influences her dreams. She has a dream that she's just on a floating cloud. And she's harvesting fruit from the cosmos of the clouds. It's like she's harvesting rain, spreading water across the world. That's how she feels what farming is, you know. And that's just being interpreted in dream form. But then she wakes up again, hearing a bunch of loud noises again. And then she wakes up and then she goes to the kitchen and the basket of pears are gone. She's just like, where could, where could they be? They couldn't have moved on their own. So she walks around her house trying to find the pears. And eventually she sees her dog on a chair outside. And the pears sitting still surrounding the chair. But they're also chewing on the legs of the chair. And she's just like, oh, Spot, oh no. And the spot just like barks, just like, oh, what the fuck is this? And Andrew's like, shit, I don't know. I don't speak dog, but I know, I can tell you're freaked out. So she just grabs Spot and then runs into her room, leaving the pears on the porch. And she locks her door. And then she just like calls Robert. And then Robert wakes up sleepily and answers the phone. He's just like, uh, hello. And then Andrew's like, Robert, the, the pears. And Robert's just like, what, what about the pears? And then she's just like, the pears, they're, they have teeth and they're eating things. They're like termites and they went after my dog. My dog's okay, but like, shit, these are really nasty pears. And then Robert's just like, oh, what, what pears did you get? And then uh, Angelo's just like, what? And then Robert was just like, well, did you get the pears from the first tree or the second tree? And... Angelo's just like, oh, I guess, I think the pear is from the second tree, I think. And then Robert's just like, oh, no. And then Angelo's like, what is it? And Robert was just like, those are the carnivorous pears. And Angelo's like, what do you mean the carnivorous pears? And then Robert's just like, yeah, they eat meat. And then just like a long pause. And Angelo's like, well, what does that mean? And then Robert was just like, well, you know, like Venus fly traps, they need protein and stuff, you know. So did the pears you brought back, you know. We usually give them to like separate sellers. I thought you got the pears from the first tree. And then Andrew was just like, oh, they both look the same to me. And then Robert said, well, that shows how much you know about pears. And then Andrew was just like, well, what am I going to do about this? And Angel and then Robert said, uh, shit, I don't know. Just subdue them, make them in the food. I don't know. They're sentient, but you can kill them. And then Angelo's just like, I gotta, okay. So Angela goes into her closet and pulls the baseball back. She pulls the baseball bat out back from when she was into baseball. And then she goes back out to the rest of her house. She goes to the porch. She sees some pears eating things, eating her furniture. And she tries to like bash the pears and mush them. 
and they make loud, like, high-pitched growling sounds at her. And she's like, ah, oh, fuck, this is crazy. So she just, like, bashes all the pears. And then there's some, like, in her kitchen. The fridge is open, and, like, the pears are, like, eating, like, her meat, like, her steaks that she had, like, refrigerated. And she was like, ah, oh, I was gonna do some sirloin with that. And she bashes the pears some more. And she just keeps hitting the pears until they're all mush. So she's just exhausted, sweaty, holding a bat, with all these decimated carnivorous pears surrounding her house. And she's just like, well, I guess this would make a good pie. So she gathers the mush pears up and starts going with her pear pie recipe. It takes a while, but she puts it in the oven. And she's just like, alright, well, I took care of the pears. They're being made into pie. And she spent the whole night baking that pie. She didn't sleep at all. But then she pulls out the pie and lets it cool down. But by the time the pie is finished and cooled down, it's like 5 in the morning. And she's just like, oh, well, that pie looks pretty fucking delicious, you know. It was really terrifying at first, but I hope this is good. Even though it's a full pie that you can cut into slices, she just, she just dips a fork into it and takes a bite. It's still steaming hot. She's just like, oh, fuck. This is the best dessert I've ever made. This is great. But as, she eat, as she's eating, she hears a high-pitched growl coming from her bedroom. And then she hears her dog bark. She goes into her bedroom, and then she sees her dog on the on the bed barking at a one carnivorous pair on the floor, growling at the dog. The dog's barking at the pair, and then eventually Angela just grabs the pair from behind, and the pair's screaming with his sharp teeth, shouting and yelling. And then she realizes, oh, well, I'm holding the pair now. It's not so vicious this way. So, she brings the pear into the kitchen, and she's just like, hey, you're hungry, aren't you? And then she hears the pear growl some more, growling at her. So she takes a fork of the pear pie, and then positions it to the, in front of the carnivorous pear, and she's like, here, try this. And the pear chews on it, munches on it, and then when the pear eats the bite of pear pie, he's, the pear is like growling less. And then she's like, yeah, it's good, right? So she keeps feeding more spoonfuls to the carnivorous pear. He's just munching on it with his, his sharp teeth and whatnot. And she's like, yeah, yeah, it's a really good pie, isn't it? And then the pear is just like munch, munch, doing less growling, making very like comfortive sounds, like feeling really relaxed and whatnot. And then Angel's just like, yeah, it's good, right? So eventually she, uh, puts the pear down on the counter and she pulls an old fish tank from her closet sets it up in the living room and then puts the pear into the fish tank and then puts the top on and the pear is just like sitting in there you know Angela takes some pine shavings from the garage and sprinkles it in and lets the pear get comfortable and whatnot and she's just like yeah it's like, yeah alright I can have a pet carnivorous pear So then she, you know, at this point it's 7 a.m. 
and then she's just like, oh, I guess I'll make coffee, since I didn't sleep. So she makes the coffee, and she drinks some, she looks at her pie, looks at the carnivorous pear, looks at Spot the dog, and then looks out the window, and then she thinks, oh, well, I thought harvesting the pears uh, was, was a really good day. But I had a much better day, putting them to good use. Shame on you, Angela! <laughs> You're a great Angela. <laughs> <laughs> Give those pears a taste of their own medicine. Oh, oh. Mm -hmm. Wow. That concludes Quarantine Spook Show. I'm Kyle Carezzi. And good night.